today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We don't know if Joe Biden's getting closer to selecting a vice presidential candidate. We know the conventions are all basically done and dusted. It's not happening. We would have had a convention uh, by now, quite obviously, for the Democrats. I, it might have even been this week. Uh, it's great theater. I always enjoy all five days of it. I watched, you know, <laughs> no matter what we thought was impending or coming in 2016, uh, I watched both. I just I've watched those things every year since like I was a little kid uh, in the 80s, as a matter of fact. Uh, so it's remarkable, though, that there's a CNBC report um, noting that some of Joe Biden's allies, some of his main donors are alleged to be waging a what a I guess we'd call a campaign, sort of a, a you know a shadow campaign, which sounds murkier than it is. It's just not on the record. So much is not on the record, and there's nothing wrong with that, because they don't want Kamala Harris, the Democratic senator from California, to become his vice president. Now, um, is that about winning the election now? I don't think so. Is that about her ambition to potentially be in the catbird seat to run for president in 2024? Maybe so. Maybe so. But I don't I don't think this is a case right now about race. I don't think this is a case about sexism. I call it out when I see it. But I, I do think there are some that think other candidates potentially would be better served. Um, we had this problem with, when you know a lot of people's hearts sank when Hillary chose, uh, Tim, you know, Tim Kaine in 2016. We're like, well, that's not a very ambitious choice. So you can't have it both ways. That's a very milquetoast choice. And, and I think the Republicans seize that moment when. Uh, when Tim Kaine was chosen and was just very, you know, just not not very inspirational, to be perfectly honest. I'm very pleased to welcome in our next guest. Great, extensive political history. And right now he's professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Uh, Richard Painter joins us on the broadcast. Richard, Greg Brady, thank you very much for making the time to do this today. Absolutely. Uh, wonderful to uh, join you. Do I have this right? Do uh, do you see that, that there's bound to be some, you know, push and pull, some give and take? And it's just natural that not 100 percent of Joe Biden's supporters or inner sanctum uh, w- would see one particular person as the best choice for vice president. How did you read that news story when it came out a couple of days ago? Well, absolutely uh, correct. There's going to always be a lot of push and pull over who the vice presidential nominee ought to be. And there are two factors. One is how much is the vice president going to help win the election? Uh, The other is who do you want to put in the uh, number two position uh, and uh, give an enormous advantage to running for president in the next cycle? And this is particularly uh, a matter of interest when we have an older uh, nominee uh, Mm on the Democratic side. Actually, we have on both sides, Trump and Biden are older. And so the uh, chances of uh, of President Biden wanting to serve not only one but two terms are are not particularly high. So there might very well be another nominee in 2024 if Biden wins the presidency this time around. It does seem more than any other president before. I mean, we weren't even having that conversation because of the, I guess, what we call the popularity of the president. But Ronald Reagan became president when he was 69, and we didn't even give it a second thought. Of course he's going to run in 1984 at 73, and he, and he obviously trounced Walter Mondale, only won his home state, a state you're very familiar with where you are right now in Minnesota. But I'd, I'd look and say, do we think it's a certainty, an absolute certainty, that Joe Biden would not run at age 81 for a second term. Is there any circumstance in which he would run for a second term upon election? Oh, I think he could. I mean, he, he is healthy, and, and we'd see how the four years go. Uh, 
uh, but I think he's he's quite healthy, and he he has not foreclosed that uh, option, and he could very well go for two terms. Uh, but because he's older, I think there are a lot of people sort of circling around thinking that well, the vice presidential nominee is going to have an enormous advantage. And even if he served two terms, the vice presidential nominee would have an enormous advantage in 2028. Um, and so people are thinking about, uh, is this someone we want to be our future president or a future nominee? Is this someone who could win at the top of the ticket years down the road as well as win right now? Uh, obviously, the priority for the Democrats should be winning right now and not worry about being worried about their top their ticket in 2024, 2028. Totally, yeah. Um, yeah, Richard Painter is our guest, by the way, uh, from uh, a professor of corporate law at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Um, th- this has happened throughout history. The recent example, I mentioned Reagan. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush ran against him uh, as, a, as a Republican nominee in 1980 and was was harshly critical at, at times, uh, and Reagan had a great deal of reservations about him as a running mate. Do presidential candidates, once you get the nominee, Richard, you, you got to be able to to let stuff go. You certainly have to 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 do. Bill Clinton let stuff go about Al Gore when Gore had criticized him in in 1988. Gore was more turning his his um, focus over to Michael Dukakis. Then, do you have to let a lot of stuff go? And and should Biden do that with Kamala Harris? Oh well, yes. Whoever he chooses. Uh, whether it's Harris or whoever he chooses, he needs to um, uh, make absolutely sure uh, to work with that person. Uh, I've I urged uh, Elizabeth Warren because I think she's sort of more uh, inspiring than some of the other choices in terms of policy, but uh, there are a number of very good choices. Uh, but whoever it is, they certainly have got to bury the hatchet from the presidential debate if it happens to be someone who was a candidate for president. Uh, that is some like Susan Rice, who's actually worked in the Biden, Obama Biden administration, and might not pose that problem. But I, I think everybody can be grown-ups here and move on and focus on winning the election uh, rather than having spats amongst themselves. Do you look at it as a? Um, I, I would have said if we'd had a conversation in November, pre-coronavirus, uh, Richard, I, I would have said uh, I'm convinced whoever the Democratic nominee is. Uh, that they win because people have pointed to the stock market as the economy and you and I know and a lot of our intelligent listeners would know the stock market is is not a a precursor of who's doing well and who isn't among 330 million people but now we've got the coronavirus now we've got massive unemployment now we've got you know uh, just a an unbelievably challenging era in America and it's uh, it's a daily grind just to get through it would you say that the election is is not only a certainty for the Democrats and Joe Biden, but it's it's going to be a blowout election win? Never know what's going to happen. <laughs> the country right now is very much opposed to President Trump, and and I'm in that in that group. I was a Republican for thirty years. I was the chief White House ethics lawyer for President George W. Bush. I uh, certainly am not a left winger. Uh, I'm a moderate in my political mm-hmm. views. I, on either end of the one end or the other, but I think for the vast majority of Americans who aren't diehard conservatives, uh, uh, Donald Trump is unacceptable, and a lot of conservatives have turned against uh, Donald Trump, including my good friend and law school classmate George Conway, uh, who is uh, certainly getting it all, all sorts of spats with his wife Kellyanne. He gets uh, he gets some attention, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh yes, uh, George <laughs> definitely does. <laughs> 
Now, and, and as well, like when you lose, I've thought about that. I mean, I've watched George Will on Sunday morning TV, right, for for decades. When you lose George Will, when you lose uh, Max Boot, when you lose David Frum, you are you. That's a remarkable thing. So when you even say, unless you're a diehard Republican, it just feels like the party is is getting burned to the ground. Many feel, and there has to be a way. I feel bad for some of my friends who have conservative values. And they just don't have anywhere to turn, not unlike four years ago, Richard, when there were Democrats that said, this is how I feel, but I cannot in good conscience go into that go into that school, go into that library, and I cannot vote for Hillary Clinton. There's obviously Republicans that say, I am a Republican, but I cannot cast a vote for this man again. Well, I would think so, and I don't know how the Republican Party got hooked <laughs> up with him, uh, how anyone who calls themselves a conservative uh, could vote for a man uh, who was well-known in New York City to be in and out of every bed in the city, and now he's in bed with Putin. Uh, and this is really uh, a flabbergasting. Back someone like Donald Trump, uh, he's the complete opposite of a Ronald Reagan or a, uh, you know, Mitt Romney or John McCain, the other dominees that we've had in the Republican Party. Probably wasn't lost on you during John Lewis's funeral yesterday um, when Bill Clinton speaks, when when George W. Bush, who, of, of course, there was a lot of both those are very polarizing figures in American history through their through their, each of their eight year presidential eight, eight year run as president with the two terms. It probably wasn't lost on you that Donald Trump isn't there, Richard, but as well, had he been there, he would have been so out of place. We would have cringed if he'd walked to the microphone, whereas Obama, Clinton, Bush, they have that presidential feel. It would have been horrifying for America to be ready to see what – it was better that he wasn't there. I know there were Democrats that say, well, you should be there. No, no, he, he, it's, at least he's not being a hypocrite and showing up and, and speaking at someone's funeral who he clearly didn't respect or, or have uh, affection for. Well, Donald Trump shouldn't be invited to speak at anybody's funeral because Donald Trump will only talk about Donald Trump. And the whole point of a funeral is to honor the deceased, the person uh, who you were mourning, uh, not to have people get up and talk about themselves. And that's all Trump cares about is himself. And you could agree or disagree with President Bush on his policies and President Clinton and President Obama, but they were men who cared a lot about their country. They had very different visions of what was good for America, but they served because they cared about the country, not about themselves. And Donald Trump is very, very different. It's all about him. And you could see that in his Twitter feed. You see it in his speeches. So he's the last person you want in the room at anybody's funeral anywhere. Richard Painter, can't tell you how enough how much I appreciate our chat. I hope you have a great weekend, and, and I hope we get to do this again. Thanks for your insight and your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Richard Painter from the uh, Walter Ritchie Profe- uh, School of Corporate Law at the University of Minnesota, the Golden Gophers. Shouts to the Golden Gophers. That was a fascinating chat um, with Richard. And uh, if you're wondering, U.S. coronavirus case is now at 5 million. It hit today. Here's Let me lay this out for you. The first, I know they have 10 times the population of Canada. I get that. First million in the U.S. took 99 days. The second million took 45 days. The third million took 28 days. The fourth million took 16 days. And they've added another million in under seven days. 
are we hitting six million next Wednesday? Seven million on August tenth? What where will we be when two percent of the US population, two percent of the US population has coronavirus or had it at a certain point in time? Where will you be when two hundred thousand people are announced to have died from it? I don't know what stops it. And I have American relatives. Sister lives in upstate New York. I bet you 80% of the people listening have some tie somewhere to the United States. Or you travel there a lot for business, for sports, for leisure. You've been to the U.S. several times in the last 12 months. Not in the last four, but certainly in the previous eight. I go all the time. I lived there nine years. My son was, a, my son was born in, in Michigan in 2006. And I don't know, even post the Trump presidency, and it's going to it's it's a it's a fait accompli at this point. It's a done deal. I still don't know what America looks like, and I'm I'm absolutely troubled and frightened by both those things. Like this is serious business. I, I you'll never get unanimity in anything. Okay, we we think we're torn apart politically in Canada. Well, yeah, we are, and yeah, we're not. Because you look, you look south of the border, and it's nothing in Canada. The acrimony, the vitriol, the anger, the frustration, and again, the pure sadness. It's nothing like what we're seeing in the U.S. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.